0: Welcome to The Readings Podcast, a celebration of books. I'm Nico Callaghan. In today's episode, the second session for 2022 of The Readings Australian Red Cross Book Club on the laws and impact of war. In this session of The Book Club, we are joined by Steve Killalay, AM, to discuss his debut book, Peace in the Age of Chaos, the best solution for a sustainable future. Humanity has been studying peace since the 7th century, yet the world is less peaceful now than even 10 years ago. What has happened? Why is the world becoming more chaotic, not less? From the winner of the Luxembourg Peace Prize and founder of the world-renowned think tank the Institute for Economics and Peace, comes a compelling new look at the factors that create highly peaceful societies, and how we can sustain them at a time of unprecedented environmental, social, economic and technological change. Killer is joined by Jonathan Kolab to discuss his commitment to create a paradigm shift in the way the world thinks about peace, the economic cost of conflict and violence, and where to from here in an age of unprecedented global change. Now here's the host of the discussion, Reading's Programming Manager, Chris Gordon.
1: Before we get started with this Red Cross group, before we start talking about Steve's book, before I start introducing Jonathan, I want you all to just think a little about what you've done with your day. I don't know about you, but here in Melbourne, it's been raining all day. A couple of times I've ran out to the shops. I've been doing emails. I've been doing some meetings. I've walked the dog. I've cooked some dinner. And I've done all of those activities, all of them on land that's not mine, on land that has been stolen from the First Nations people. And I reckon that all of us, wherever it is that we are in Australia have got to take some time out of our busyness, out of our pace, to just stop and reflect what that might be like for the First Nations people of Australia. And also I know that this sort of role of the acknowledgement of country means that I should be sending out my respects on behalf of all of you here to the elders, past, present and emerging, but I reckon in 2022, and with this group of people that are here today on this Zoom event, we can do better. I already know that you're thinkers. I already know that you're story collectors because you're here with us now. So what I think would be quite extraordinary is that if we all made a commitment to read some of the First Nations stories, to understand their poetry and their song lines to sit still for a little and listen to the First Nations people so that when we go to barbecues, when we go to in real life book groups, when we go to dinner parties, we can take some of that stories and some of that understanding with us and make Australia better, just better. And surely in 2022, that's all we want. Hello and welcome. My name is Chris Gordon. I'm the Programming Manager for Readings, your very favourite independent bookshop, and I'm delighted to be welcoming you here on behalf of the Red Cross and on behalf of Readings. I want to introduce you to Jonathan. Now, Jonathan works down the road from me at the RMIT. He does a variety of different tasks there. He's one of these blokes that's juggling a lot of balls in the air He's a busy man. He's a senior lecturer at law at RMIT, and he works in the peace and conflict theme lead as RMIT's business and human rights centre. But he's done more than that. He's gone right around the world consulting on different global governance issues. He's been responsible and responsive to businesses in conflict zones. He's travelled giving legal advice Because his main directive, his main gumption, which I know is joined by Steve, is to actually make this world just a bit better. Over to you, Jonathan.
2: Christine, thank you for that very generous uh, introduction. Steve, Steve Killalay. I have the pleasure of introducing Steve and engaging him in conversation. Steve Killalay, for those that do not know him, many ways to introduce you, Steve. How about this in one line? Businessman, venture capitalist, philanthropist, peace builder, entrepreneur, and now author. That's one line. It's a long line. Uh, A little bit longer, again, just for for the benefit of the audience, a little bit of your background, Steve, and a more formal introduction. Steve is uh, an international entrepreneur behind the global think tank, the Institute for Economics and Peace. He combines a highly successful career in technology with a philanthropic focus on peace and sustainable development. Steve is the founder of Integrated Research, an Australian publicly listed company with a 30-year heritage, providing its performance monitoring software for business-critical computing. Think of the largest IT companies or largest organizations on the planet. They're using Steve's software. Many of the global top 1,000 companies are using his software in over 50 countries around the world. Steve's always had a strong passion, as we'll soon find out, for sustainable development, starting three decades ago and establishing one of Australia's largest philanthropic foundations, the Charitable Foundation. Steve harbours over a decade's worth of experience specifically in the issue of global peace. He founded the Institute for Economics and Peace in 2008. It is an independent, neutral, not-for-profit global research institute, analyzing the interconnections between business, peace, and economic development. Steve's funding and thought leadership has brought him many awards, including being named as one of the world's 100 most influential people on reducing the onset of armed violence. That's enough of the introductions as far as I'm concerned. Let's get a little bit more into your book, Peace in the Age of Chaos and What Makes You Tick, Steve. What a book. Steve, I think I shared with you earlier, I had to put it down because I couldn't keep reading through the tears. I found it quite an inspirational and emotional read. Steve, I describe this book as part personal memoir, part recounting of the Institute for Economics and Peace, and part political manifesto of a sort. And we'll get to all three of those elements. But I'm curious, how do you describe
3: this book? Jonathan, and thanks for the introduction, I'd see four different themes running through it. Part of it is about number of the experiences I've had in the developing world, about what actually shaped me in terms of my views towards peace. The second is an entrepreneurial journey in creating a global think tank. The fourth is actually the work of IEP and the good mm-hmm. work we've done over the years And the final one is the concept of positive peace, which provides transformational concepts to actually look at the way we go about developing society. And that's particularly true in the current age because if we look at the Western democracies, I'd describe them as having squeaky wheels. People are becoming disenfranchised more with democracy than what they have over the years. It's not that the West is giving up on democracy but we're certainly not as enthralled by it as what we were. We're finding that a lot of people are also getting more cynical, of politics, people, perceptions, and I just say perceptions, of corruption are on the rise, and a number of other things as well. For example, we're just looking at, let's say, violent demonstrations. We're just doing this year's Global Peace Index now. We go back over the last decade Violent demonstrations have increased almost every year, about 120% now on what they were a decade ago.
2: So, is the, Steve, is the age of chaos? I mean, Peace in the Age of Chaos is the name of the book. We'll we'll spend the best part of the hour talking about peace, but what is this age of chaos that you refer to in the title? Is that the rising tide of violence and, and extremism that you see in the world?
3: No, not necessarily. I think. If we're looking at peace in the age of chaos, and I coined the phrase maybe two years ago when we did the book because I had this vision, I guess, of what's coming. But look what's happening as we're sitting here now. We've come out the back end of COVID. There's a whole range of supply chain issues. From that, we've had rising inflation. We can see that we've got massive contradictions within societies we find that uh, real wages are dropping, yet we've got in many of the Western democracies record levels of employment. And we're looking now at the Ukraine war and moving forward from that, it's only going to increase the levels of inflation which we currently got. It's also creating a whole range of other supply chain issues. We've got uh, record debt, if we went back To just, I think, six months ago, the percentage of debt to global GDP was 246%. That's all government, private individuals, corporations, and such. And so, as we're sitting here now, we've got this snowball rolling down a hill. We're in the chalet at the bottom. (laughs)
2: Well, that's a wonderful pessimistic place to start. I think everyone should reach for those sneaky reds that Christine referred to at that point. This is an optimistic book at the end of the day, isn't it? And the theme of your personal journey is very much seeing peace as perhaps the salve or part of the response to that age of chaos to get us all through. But Steve, can we start at the beginning of your story and, and, and touch on that personal memoir element in the book? My first draft of that one line bio for you, Steve, actually didn't start with with businessman or philanthropist. It was a surfing beach bum, but I, I realized that was probably a bit too cheeky. So, how did it all begin for you way back when?
3: Well, gee, we're really going back now. So, I look back and we'll go back to let's say my early 20s. I left school fairly early, to be honest. See, I was really just more keen on surfing. So I spent a lot of time surfing, spent time in surfing in Indonesia, and that stage was really quite a wild, unexplored place. And like I lived with a family, and I used to live with the family, and it was just a classic Indonesian poor family. I paid 40 cents a day for my room, and I was living on about 20 cents for each of the uh, three meals I'd have during the day. And then on top of that, I'd obviously have transport to go to where I wanted to serve. But these people were really poor, and I really got a clear understanding of uh, poverty. And then as I moved on in life and sort of had successful companies, I then got sort of thought, well, got more money than I can ever spend. What should I do with it? So I decided to create a family foundation to work with the poorest of the poor, to do interventions, which was substantially life-changing, with the aim of touching as many people as possible. And that really comes down to bang for the buck. And so I looked around in Australia to do things, but for a million bucks or even half a million dollars, you don't get much. And then I had a friend who was the treasurer at World Vision at the time. And he said, look, Steve, why don't you travel up to Laos with me and have a look? And at that stage, Laos was a closed country. I said, yeah, okay, Kevin, that sounds like a great idea. So we went up there and that was just amazing. It was like going back a 1,000 years in time. we drive from the capital, Vientiane, down to the southern province, Savanaket, and along the main road, and it would be about a 10-hour trip. Most of it was dirt. You would not see one window with glass in it. That's how far you were going back. And so what we did was a water project, and there was... It was simple. It was just really putting some pumps into some villages. But we picked one district to do it in, and there no, there was no clean water in that district at that stage. And we dropped the child mortality rate for children under five from 18% to 12%. And that was would have been some of the highest rates in the world at that stage. And then that also knocked out about one-third of all the disease because it was waterborne. And... Will literally cost less than $20 a head. And, like, I think there was 12,000 people involved in that first project. <laughs> I was hooked from then on because I could just see when you get into the developing world, you get the right projects, and there's plenty of wrong projects, but you get the right projects, the difference you have in terms of alleviating human suffering is immense. And what drove you well, not
2: simply to, uh, like many other successful business people do, set up a foundation and donate? money. There seemed to be an inner drive for you to be there on the ground, to be actively involved in the delivery and evaluation of projects.
3: Well, I think there's two things there, Jonathan. Part of it is I like adventure. I've done crazy things in my life because I just, you get out into parts of the world where you're Westerners that rarely go you're alive, you're really stimulated. Like, you get on the planes with the Maasai, for example, or you go dancing with the Samburu. I can't tell you how invigorating it is. Or going, tracking up a stream with a couple of trackers. You can, in Africa, they've got this story of the night before, and they can read the tracks and see what happened with the animals the night before, and things like that. They're just amazing. Mm-hmm. So the second aspect is, I like to really see where the money was going to just really make sure it's being spent correctly. Mm. So that was another really important part of it. But I guess also, I guess there's a third one as well. So that's in terms of personal fulfillment. What I find is if you go and visit the projects, you get an emotional connection, you get that movement of the heart. And that movement of the heart is then what sort of binds you with what you do. And I found at one stage there, particularly when I was still CEO at integrated research, I'd be in the board meetings looking at the projects. And I went, I think it was 12 months at one point without visiting a project, and suddenly it all became maths in my head because I'm pretty mathematical. And so I've got all these questions and it's about the costs of the project, the number of beneficiaries, and my heart, element of my heart was missing yeah. then bang, you get to the projects and that
2: changes. Speaking of heart, one of the most moving stories you shared was in Gulu, Uganda, uh, where you met Michael, I believe a former school teacher and counsellor trying to reintegrate child soldiers from the LRA into everyday life. And then you also met a young woman. I wonder if you wouldn't mind perhaps people that have read the book but just want to hear it again or perhaps some folks that haven't yet gotten around to read the book. Would you mind retelling that story?
3: Sure, yeah. Well, this is pretty uh, pretty horrific. So we've all come across Islamic State. We all think Islamic State's are pretty bad, and they are. In fact, they're very, very bad. But in northern Uganda, there was a group called the Lord's Resistance Army and called the LRA. And so the way they got their soldiers was to raid villages, capture a, a boys, usually in the age of 7 to 10. Uh, about 80% of the people they captured were boys and about 20% girls. They'd be 14 to 16 normally. Then they'd taken back to the base camp and along the way they kill anything up to 25% of the kids they just captured. And the way that was if any of them cried, they were slow moving, complained, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The way they'd do it is they get the kids they just captured to beat these kids to death. And the soldiers themselves would stand over them and beat the kids if they weren't beating the other kids hard enough. And that was sort of their initiation into the death cult. What they'd do, they get them back to base camp. And then, so usually within a year, they get them to raid the same village which they came from and get them to force them to kill someone, sometimes their own parents. What that would do effectively do is cut off an escape route so they could never get back. And then the LRA become their family. So what we had was a project which worked on the rehabilitation of these child soldiers, There's this number of them in escape, others would get captured by uh, the Ugandan army, and the Ugandan army was pretty good. Uh, because they realised just uh, what the kids were. They'd debrief them, find out intelligence, then they'd bring them to this camp over this funding. Now, one of the visits there, I met this guy called Michael. He'd been a school teacher. He was his, there was no school, so he didn't have anything. He had two daughters he was looking after with their kids. And one of the husbands had disappeared, the other one had died of AIDS. He had this small area, quarter of an acre which had cane in it, and that's what he used to cut to make a living. But he also used to act as a mentor to a lot of these kids when they come back out. And I think of when I met him, he mentored maybe 10 kids, and he'd do it all for free, but he'd also then be a target for the LRA, quite a brave man uh, with nothing but still giving. And anyway, sitting down in a, what was to become one of the uh, IDP camps there, talking this woman walked past and so he called her over and says oh she's new he hadn't seen her before called her over and said oh can you tell us your story and then in a slightly uh, broken voice she started to tell a story and like this is quite tragic what happened when she was 16 she got caught by the LRA taken off into southern Sudan at that stage There she had a child to one of the LRA commanders. The child died uh, in the first three months. After a period of time, she escaped and got further down the southern Sudan, then got uh, picked up by another man and uh, forced to live with her for a period of time. She had another child which died. After that, she escaped again and got down in northern Uganda somewhere where she was picked up by a with another man, but she knew she was in, the, uh, in Uganda somewhere, and somehow got a letter off to a sister. The sister sort of then went and spent some months and eventually sort of was able to track him down and find her, and then she came back to this camp. Now, the face was a face like something I hadn't seen before, and what had happened we should had a nose and the lips cut off or the tip of the nose cut off and the lips because in a firefight with the Ugandan army, she dropped the commander's goods, which she had on her back, and that was a punishment. And so I said to her, well, what do you want to do? She said, all I want to do is go back to school. And what suddenly hit me, what really hit me, was all she wanted to do was go back to her past. Now, our project was child soldiers, and so... They all cut off at 20, so she was too old for the project we were doing. But we are so moved by the story, we put in a special intervention to help her. So we got her off, got her to some medical doctors, got her checked out. What we found is she had the uh, TB, some sexually transmitted diseases, something else, and also AIDS. So we fixed up and did what we could. Three months later, she died. Jonathan I think the key thing the key thing for your audience also is like this is the face of war okay yeah. and that's a story of a woman I can give you stories of a whole range of men being brutalized in the uh, just as badly but in other ways
2: and that seemed to be a seminal moment steve and 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 I guess I'm curious is that the seminal one of the seminal moments that led you to focus your efforts and energies on peace Why did that become your life's mission rather than, let's say, sustainable development or poverty alleviation? Why peace
3: for you? Well, Jonathan, it's like all the things in my life, they accidentally happen (laughs) to me. One of the things (laughs) for me, and I honestly think it's true for most people, we're on a journey. Life unfolds in front of us and you just got to go with the flow. So what happened I decided to work with the poorest of the poor. And so where are the poorest of the poor? They're in war zones, near post-war zones and such, like in northern Uganda. So I spent a lot of time in a lot of nasty places. And then finally I was in northeast Kabil in the Congo, which is one of the more violent places in the world, and then looking at some projects to deal with fistula tears Every one in 100 women in Northeast Kavu suffer from fistful tears, and there's 40 million people in Northeast Kavu. So you can do the maths from that. That's an awful lot of people, 200,000. Anyway, I'm walking through there, and I suddenly started, and it was just a fantasy question. So I think, well, what are the most peaceful nations? And was there anything I could learn from them to bring in the projects I was doing? Like just fantasy. And so I got back to Sydney, did a search of the internet, and couldn't find a thing. So from there, I got hold of a uh, friend, uh, Stuart Rees, who ran the Sydney Peace Foundation, and said, hey, Stuart, who are the most peaceful nations in the world? And he said, oh, well, Sweden, uh, Norway. And I go, go, whoa, you're making it up as you go. And then he came back two weeks later and said, I can't find anything. Mm. So what I did then was went round to a number of different leading uh, peace institutions in the world and asked them whether they thought it was a good idea and whether they were going to do anything similar. And they all said it was a great idea and they weren't going to do it. And that's how the Global Peace Index was born, which set me off on a new journey. A simple businessman or guy like myself can be walking through Africa and think, what are the most peaceful nations in the world, and it hasn't been done, then how much do we know about peace? You can't measure something? Can you understand it? You can't measure it. How do you even know whether your actions are helping you or hindering you in what you're doing? You simply don't.
2: Mm. And you write in the book, measurement lies at the heart of understanding peace. How do you personally cope with the emotional tolls that witnessing these tragedies uh, firsthand
3: I'm pretty resilient. I'm pretty resilient, I suppose. And I guess there's the concepts of empathetic responses and sympathetic responses, But want some better words. Sympathetic responses, you see someone suffering, you identify with the suffering, you take it on board. Okay, so that quite often ends up emotionally damaging. And empathetic responses, I see the suffering, I identify it, but I don't take it into myself. And from that, you can still have all the right emotions, like empathetic emotions, like mm. movements of the heart and stuff, but you don't actually take it on board.
2: Mm. There was another passage in the book where you were quoting an ancient Roman military strategist. And, and here, I, I want to transition your, to your work in establishing the Institute for Economics and Peace and the Global Peace Index. And that military strategist, you say, the best way to prepare for peace is to prepare for war, is the ancient saying. We've all heard that in one shape, form or another. And then you carry on and write, the irony is that this was written just before the collapse of the Roman Empire. How often has this slogan been repeated through the ages and yet is as false today as it was then?
3: It just shows that uh, we're in an age where we're all worried about misinformation. But look how far it goes back. And sort of there's an old saying, if the only thing you've got is a hammer, then you'll always be always be hammering the nail. So if I can go out and think up, oh, let's build a global peace index, we didn't really know too much about peace. There's been a lot of peace movements through time, but generally peace is about looking at violence and then trying to stop violence. But I'm going to give you an analogy now. This is a medical analogy. So... Great breakthroughs in pathology. None of us are going to die of a heart attack young. We're starting to cure cancers really good. But it wasn't, let's say, maybe till the 80s we started to study healthy people Did we understand what we needed to stay healthy and not get sick in the first place, in other words, have the resilience. Right diet, correct mental disposition, plenty of exercise. You're not going to learn any of those things through studying someone on the deathbed. Now, this is back... To your question. so it's an analogy with peace. and seeing we have the global peace index, what we could do then was start to study the healthy societies, the ones which were most peaceful. Mm. And so to do that because obviously we're big on mass, so we used mathematical techniques to do it. so we took the global peace index then we've got about twenty six thousand different data sets, indexes, attitudinal surveys, which we then did a whole lot of statistical analysis to see which factors most closely associated with peaceful societies. We then used further mathematical modelling and statistical techniques to clump them together. Then we got rid of the duplicates, and then we ended up with eight different what we call pillars, which create a peaceful society. And so now if we want to create peace, we have to work with the things which create peace. So all too often, and you'll see it in our political leaders all the time, so they're looking for a problem, okay, and they've got a problem, they go back to the cause, and then the whole focus is on the cause. But we live in systems. We live in systems. And so systems operate massively different than sort of the cause and effect, which is what that's about And so what you need to do is you need to look at these eight pillars and then work out how do you stimulate them all simultaneously to get the changes you want in society. The other thing is once you get societies and you get them moving in a particular direction, then it's self-reinforcing. So from that angle, we look at the societies as either being in virtuous cycles or vicious cycles, in other words, societies with The attitude institutions and structures within them are continually improving and reinforcing each other or decaying and going in the other direction.
2: Let's break it down a little bit, Steve, if if I may. So, the Global Peace Index, I mean, this is the product, if you will, that the Institute for Economics and Peace publishes each year, which grabs a lot of eyeballs, a lot of attention, including amongst the leaderships of countries around the world. It's It's a ranking of countries by their peacefulness. Interestingly, though, what's your definition of peace for the Global Peace Index?
3: Well, there's multiple definitions of peace, and that depends on what your starting point is. So if you're looking at personal peace, I'd use it as the absence of afflictive emotion, somewhat Buddhist. So that'd be what I'd use of looking at personal peace. So for the Global Peace Index, we came up with the absence of violence or fear of violence. And the reason... For that, as it's a definition most people can readily wrap their minds around and agree with, and you can get good statistics and measures for it. Now, the next one is positive peace, which we've just been discussing. That's the attitudes, institutions, and structures which create and sustain peaceful societies. And so the definition of peace is dependent on what you're trying to achieve.
2: So ones, if you will, like in peace and conflict studies speak, negative peace, the absence of violence, and positive peace, as you say, more harmonious, sustainable societies. Going back to the Global Peace Index, I'm curious, who's at the top, who's at the bottom?
3: (laughs) Well, if we go to the top, we'll find that Iceland's at the top. Iceland's been at the top since we've actually done it. Well, a lot of people say, well, that's not surprising. It's too cold for anyone to go outside.
2: I've heard that Iceland has one of the best nightclubbing cultures on the planet.
3: Yeah, probably. I've spent quite a bit of time in Iceland over the years. Great, great, great country. So now if we look up in the top 10 also, what you'll find is a lot of European countries. You'll find other countries like New Zealand and Japan and Canada there also. Uh, you'll find most of the highly peaceful countries are democracies, but not necessarily also. Qatar, for example, and Singapore are well up, but generally well-developed uh, democracies at the top. If you go to the bottom 10 countries in the Global Peace Index, they're all in conflict. Afghanistan is currently the bottom.
0: Mm. So
3: as we move in, and this is Ukraine will have the largest fall, Russia's now one of the least peaceful nations in the world
2: predominantly the bottom 10 in the Middle East as well. Uh, Yemen, Iraq, Somalia, so Middle East and North Africa overrepresented there. You had some really astute comments before about virtuous cycles, and, and you wrote about that in the book. As a business person, you highly critical of this other measurement that's out there, not the Global Peace Index, but GDP that we've all heard about as a measure of economics. You don't like the GDP, but it is the big measure of economics. And is there a linkage between Global Peace Index and GDP?
3: Yes. And GDP is excellent for measuring a whole lot of things. It measures the how wealthy a society is, OK? But there's a lot of flaws in it, which I'll come back to in the moment. And so, at this stage, it is probably the best measure we've got. The thing is, it's quite often linked to political cycles. So if GDP drops, that usually means the recessions. When there's a recession, politicians get unelected. And it's an easy figure for politicians and society to grasp as it's a single measure. So it was actually invented uh, during the Second World War, but it's never expected to be used much after that. So GDP is important. So countries with higher GDP, but more importantly, it's per capita income, which is key. So countries with higher per capita income tend to be more peaceful. So if we look at GDP, for example, countries which are improving in positive peace compared to countries which are deteriorating, on average have 2% per annum higher GDP growth rate. Inflation rates, interest rates are lower. In fact, inflation is three times less volatile. Countries which are improving in positive peace compared to countries deteriorating get twice as much foreign direct investment Sovereign debt ratings are much better and tend to be improving, and their exchange rates too tend to improve over time compared to countries who are deteriorating in positive peace where they drop.
2: Is that a relationship of causation or correlation?
3: I'd view it as an output of a system. Okay, so causation, I'm very, very careful. To avoid, I'd say I look at this thing as being systemic effects. So now let's come back and we'll just look at at these eight pillars of positive peace for a second. And so all these things, the same things which drive peace, also drive a whole lot of other things we think are important, including a a stronger business environment. So if you're a business guy and you want to improve your business environment, focus on positive peace. So I'll just come back to it. So things like well-functioning government, strong business environment, equitable distribution of resources, free flow of information, high levels of human capital, acceptance of the rights of others, good relationships with neighbours, low levels of corruption. So as you can see, all those things go together. Now, it's not that one drives another, okay? So I'll give you an example of just systems and the way systems operate. So let's look at, Three pillars, okay? So we'll look at government, we'll look at corruption, and let's say free flow of information. That could be epitomised by free press. Okay, the so does the government create the environment for the free flow of information, or does the free flow of information affect the way the government actually operates? Does the government pass laws to control corruption Or does corruption actually affect and control the way government's operate? Mm. Does the free flow of information shine a light on corruption and change corruption? Or does corruption change the way information flows through society? You can't separate any of it out, can you?
2: Mm. Given this is a readings Red Cross book club, uh, I'm a lawyer, uh, what role for law in building peace?
3: Law is incredibly important. In fact, law has one of the highest correlations with peace. And so that's what we'd call the rule of law, and that sort of comes back a lot of the, which you know well, World Bank measures on the, on the rule of law and such. What happens if you've got good rule of law, you've got a system now which people will buy into, okay, because they'll see that there's justice, from a business perspective, you've got the right rule, rules of law, you've now got the right ability to be able to do contracts which you can trust. You can now know that if you, there's illegalities within your business, you can sort them out through the courts rather than having to resort to other areas. So the rule, rule of law, what it does is create consistency, creates for efficiency, and that then generates a, a, a stronger business environment and also more trust. From citizens
2: within their government, and I'm curious also just a subset of law, I guess, international humanitarian law. Right? Australian Red Cross has a mandate to promote respect for the laws of war, international humanitarian law. One of the purposes, one of the objectives, arguably of IHL, is to balance, you know, humanity with military necessity to to regulate warfare because. Ultimately, we want peaceful societies. We we want the two warring parties or multiple warring parties to once the fighting is over to be able to live sustainably in the future. So what role for international law and international humanitarian law in building peace?
3: Yeah, so if we're looking at, uh, let's say, the Global Peace Index, absence of violence and fear of violence. We count the number of refugees and IDPs. So the sad part of that, in the last 20 years, it's moved from 30 million up to about 86 million. And that doesn't include the new refugees which have been created in the in Ukraine yeah. at the moment. So look, these kinds So that's that's one area where we capture it. Another area which we look at is the commitments of countries to make their payments for UN peacekeeping operations. So that's another another one okay. we look at. So people, if they're not being looked after will take desperate measures to stay alive and eat. So the actually the ability to be able to take all these people who are displaced and being able to look after them in a manner which provides them with the basic living conditions is really important to global peace. Yeah. Then also, I guess, in the long run is the resettling of them and so that they can move on and have productive lives.
2: Right. But it's
3: also more than just the individual because we can look at it at the individual level quite compassionately, but it's also more productive for society overall because if people are working, they're generating income, that goes into the society which creates other jobs. You've got now people who are producing, you end up with a more productive society, and you also end up with a happier society.
2: Yeah. the global peace index the positive peace index i should note are all on the institute for economics and peace website uh, i'm going to get this wrong so visionofhumanity.org whilst i mean anyone can read it and uh, the audience is diverse i guess one of the audiences for these tools these measurements were country leaders i'm curious if you can share maybe some good the bad the ugly responses you've 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 had from political leaders or policy leaders around the world?
3: Uh, I won't mention any names, but I've had a number of governments where we have their Australian ambassador come in and chastise us for where they are on the index. There's a whole range of standard responses to this. Well, we don't like the way we're rated on this indicator, this indicator and this indicator. We go, great, well, we get that information from this source, that source, this source. Why don't you go and talk to them? So as the ambassadors come in, they've got something coming, obviously, from their capital, uh, and, but they haven't got enough information even to put up a basic argument. So you get you get that. Do you want to come back to GDP for a sec?
2: Okay, we've only got a few moments remaining, but please.
3: Okay, I'll I'll do it in two minutes if I can. So let's have a look at GDP. So what GDP does is it counts the money which moves through society. But there's a number of things which it doesn't measure. So, for example, things which are bad for society are counted as good. So, for example, if your house burnt down, that would be good for GDP because you've got to buy a new house, build it, take out a loan to get it. So now what that points to is there's no concept of a capital account. So there isn't a capital account in GDP. So it doesn't take stock of things like, let's say, the environment, our ecological footprint, the value of the buildings we've got. It also doesn't take into account debt. Okay, Debt is good because it just fuels more consumption, which increases GDP as well. And sort of it doesn't look at the qualities of human happiness in it at all.
2: In a way, I mean, the the global peace index, the positive peace index are sort of equivalent, I guess, in a way to ESG ratings now for companies. But these are environmental social governance ratings, so to speak, that, you know, for countries might be a useful analogy, perhaps. I don't know. Steve, I wanted to um, end by getting back to that political manifesto, political reflections part that I I picked up in your book. But before I do, just wanted to marry up that entrepreneur with the peace builder in you. You're a tech entrepreneur, rather successful one at that. Can new technology aid in the prevention of war and conflict and, and help build peace?
3: I think the answer is yes. I think technology is a tool. It's like any tool, it can be used for good or bad, depends on how you want to use it. So, for example, let's look at the camera on the computer which we're looking at. So software coming through now will soon be able to tell your emotional responses. So what that means is you've now got the ability to pick up people who might be having mental anxiety earlier if you're an employer. On the other hand you might be able to use it in all sorts of coercive ways. So that would be an example of technology. So one of the things with the Ukrainian war, with the change in technology, this one's quite profound. So in the old days, you used to get intelligence, that would be gathered by the military organisations or intelligence organisations that would be curated and then dispersed. So what's happening in the Ukrainian war, what you're finding is that you've got 5G networks People on the ground are sourcing information. They're then throwing it into Facebook pages. That information is now getting dispersed real-time and raw. Mm. And so what it means, it's a whole different world of intelligence and the way intelligence is used compared to wars 20 years ago. Mm.
2: Steve, political reflections in two minutes or less. You mentioned in the book that most of our world leaders' uh, worldviews are trapped in an earlier age. Not only inaccurate, you say, but counterproductive, and that we need, quote, new criteria for selecting our leaders. We do not seem to choose our leaders based on their ethics or empathy, end quote. But let me push you, you don't name names. Empathetic leaders, are there examples, either contemporary or historical, that you can point to?
3: I uh, Look, I think there are many Jimmy Thinley, he was the uh, Prime Minister of the Bhutan, beautiful man. I mean, like, he he, he he was stunning. He was stunning. Guys like the Dalai Lama, like, a, that's the most impressive person I've met in my life. Mate, Mikhail Gorbachev was another guy I met, really, really impressed me as well. You've got a lot of them. A lot of the leaders we've got, and it's more around the way people vote, let's say, uh, uh, what people are looking for is quite often they're looking for a tough leader. We're not looking for an empathetic leader. And so quite often we'll vote for people who've got a strong head and not much heart. But if we're looking at this, what we really need within our leaders is people which have got a heart and a head. Mm. So if you're looking at people with big hearts but have actually got no uh, intelligence around what they're doing or no knowledge on what they're doing, they'll be useless if not counterproductive. Hmm. Take someone who might know all the subject matter really well, be really effective as a leader. but they've got a cold heart, they'll be downright dangerous.
2: Fascinating. Are you optimistic or pessimistic at the end of the day?
3: Gee, I get that question a lot. I'm neither optimistic or pessimistic. It depends on the situation. Most people would describe me as pretty happy, Optimistic sort of guy. So that's the way most people see me, but the same way people see you, Jonathan. So it depends on the situation. Okay, so the next two years, I'm pessimistic on the economy. I think we're going to have high inflation, we're going to have a recessionary environment. I'm optimistic on the outcome of the Ukrainian war in the long run, because here's another example of modern warfare, it's just too expensive to fight. So let's look at Afghanistan. The Russians lost there. The Americans lost there. The Americans lost in Iraq. Now we're seeing the Russians lose in the Ukraine. And so the cost of these wars is astronomical, and it's very, very hard to defeat the citizens in a country when they don't want the invading power there, and they've got a strong supply chain of weapons. Mm. So I think the outcome of this at the back end Places like China will think twice about trying to invade Taiwan. I think uh, you uh, get to the back end, you're going to have a really weakened Russia economically going forward and it will take 20 years to recover and its military forces are going to be decimated. It's going to be hard to have anything like the projected reach they used to have. And I think at the back end of it, the Europe will look up and say, well, gee... We feel a lot safer than what we did 20 years ago. So I'm optimistic on that one. I'm optimistic about climate change, Can you believe? Not many people are, but I am, because we've got the technology. I think the technology now there's to solve it, to solve it. That technology become more and more efficient. And another 15 years, net from it'll be a no-brainer, the utilization of these technologies.
2: I think we should end on that optimistic note, Steve, because the the hour is has has. Run away from us. Thank you so much for that conversation and for sharing your insights. Thank you for writing the book, Peace in the Age of Chaos. Uh, it's a wonderful read, emotional, inspiring, and thought provoking. It's available at all good bookstores, but most especially readings. I'm going to throw back to Christine. Thank readings. I thank Australian Red Cross for hosting this book club. And thank you to you, Steve, for the conversation, for writing the book, and most of all for what you do to make the world a better, more peaceful place. Thank you.
1: Steve, what an inspiration you've been tonight. Thank you so much for your honesty, for your tenacity, in fact, and for your optimism. And to you, Jonathan... I think that you should start some sort of podcast. In fact, this will be the first podcast I know that will reach your fame out. It was such an extraordinary conversation. You asked all of the right questions, the questions that I didn't realise that I wanted the answers to, and I thank you both for your commitment to this book club. And on behalf of the Australian Red Cross and on behalf of readings, I am delighted to say thank you and go well good night everybody
0: you can stream previous episodes of the readings podcast at our website we'll also find all kinds of other recommendations for great books music film and tv you can also sign up to e-news or to receive our free monthly newsletter the readings monthly the readings podcast is produced by me nico galligan the show's music is by tom hoskins All episodes of this show are recorded and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people, the Kulin Nation. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land and pay my earnest respects to the elders of the past, the present, and those emerging. Thank you for listening.